Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I am very excited today because today we are going to talk about the topic of space law and telecommunications law. So I have two wonderful guests, two very qualified guests with me today. Our first guest is Dr. Maria Vittoria Carminati. Maria is the head of the ABA Space Law Committee. She obtained her JD from the University of Houston and her LLM in Space, Cyber, and Telecommunications Law from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She has her own practice, Carminati Law PLLC in Denver, and is the CEO of Data MedX Incorporated, which develops disruptive wearable technologies for personal health monitoring and clinical data collection. Welcome, Dr. Carminati. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Glad you're here. Our second guest today is Dr. Michael Forrester. Michael is a planetary astronomer, retired from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, with a research focus on the discovery of exoplanets, which are the planets orbiting stars beyond our solar system. He has worked at Kitt Peak, the VLA, and the U.S. Naval Observatory, among others, and is currently doing research in support of the Kepler Space Telescope. He is a co-founder of Astronomy.fm, the only all-astronomy radio in the known universe, and the SciTech editor for Michigan Public Radio Station, WNMC-FM. Michael is also an outreach astronomer for the Cranbrook Institute of Science in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, and a NASA educator. Welcome, Dr. Forrester. Happy to be here. I'm glad you're both here. Uh, Very excited about this podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and get started with some questions. I'm going to start off with a basic one for you, Dr. Carminati. What is space law for our viewers out there that don't know what it is, and how did it develop? Absolutely. Space law is the licensing and regulation of activities that take place in outer space. And that is, I think, the most broad, encompassing, without getting too much into the detailed definition you can give of it. Space law regulates not only how countries interact with each other in outer space, but it also regulates how individuals and companies receive permission to fly into space, to operate in space, where they get to operate and how they get to operate in space. And also, which is the area that I focus on, managing liability exposure for damage or death or injury resulting from outer space activities. And those outer space activities include not only what happens in outer space, but also what happens on Earth ranging from training to screening to recovery to post-flight assessments and objects dropping on people, things, or animals. And space law has been around as long as humankind has been in space for the very simple reason that if I can fly something over you, I can drop it on you and Uh, If I can drop something on you, I can drop a bomb or any other chemical warfare item or any other means to hurt populations, which unfortunately is kind of where it comes from uh, in that the space race was really fed by the Cold War and was more of an antagonistic relationship rather than anything else at the time. 
And then space law got encapsulated in a series of treaties, international space law got encapsulated in a series of treaties starting in 1967 with the Outer Space Treaty and with a series of treaties after that that were ratified by space powers and then by Actually, as you go along, the treaties get ratified by fewer and fewer countries until the Moon Treaty, which is the most recent one, and is considered a failed treaty because none of the space powers at the time signed it uh, or ratified it. And so that's kind of the, the building block of space law. And then beyond that, countries have implemented space law regimes internally, which are more focused on licensing, regulation, and liability exposure. Thank you for that. And which leads directly into my uh, question for you, Dr. Forrester, since when you are at the JPL at NASA and throughout all your research now, how has space law affected you and your work and where do you see it come up while you're working? Well, it's in a couple of different layers. Uh, One layer that we're concerned with is what we call forward contamination. We want to make sure that we don't pollute other worlds. So whenever we have missions that are on their way to the moon or to Mars or uh, to other worlds, but Mars in particular, because it is a place that we can envision as being potentially habitable, we want to make sure that we are not uh, contaminating that world. That's going to become an issue, by the way, if and or when we finally send people to Mars, because while we can take a space probe and put it in an oven and bake it at a few hundred degrees for a couple of days and kill every microbe on it, most astronauts would object to that. So until we can, uh, uh, if we decide that um, we're going to loosen our forward contamination ideas, then that's going to be a challenge in dealing with the possibility of life in other worlds, particularly on Mars. Then the flip side of that is we want to make sure that life from other worlds doesn't uh, contaminate us. If and or when we have a sample return mission from Mars back to the Earth, um, there will be extraordinary measures that will have to be taken to protect the Earth from any potential contamination from Martian life. Um, Hypothetical at this stage, because we don't know of any life on Mars, but uh, the conditions were right once upon a time, and as uh, that classic science film Jurassic Park said, life finds a way. (laughs) Yes, life certainly does find a way. And this is a very timely podcast, because as of this recording yesterday, InSight landed And that's very exciting for anyone in the space field because it'll hopefully be able to give us more insight about Mars quakes and the possibility of water on Mars beneath the surface and possibly life on Mars. So all that dealing with the environment on Mars and how it could be, if ever, in the possible future brought back to Earth is very important. So it seems like space law incorporates many different areas of the law, not just, you know, just what happens in outer space, but also environmental law, international law, politics, all of that. Wherever we have uh, a couple of different people and or groups that are trying to use the same resource, then yes, we depend on the law to arbitrate how we're going to make that work in a, in a semi-fair way. Very true. So Dr. Carminati, you're the head of the ABA Space Law Committee. Why should younger aspiring lawyers enter into this field? And if they want to, how should they do it? Well, they should not enter it for the money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but space law is not really a field that you enter 
as a space lawyer. Space law is a field that you enter by being a practitioner in another field, but you focus on the space industry. And I think that's the most helpful way to give career advice to young lawyers. My trajectory into space law has been very academic. And in fact, I don't practice space law. To me, it's an academic pursuit. I write about it. I talk about it. I analyze it. And if and when I start practicing space law, I will do so as a litigator. And that's why my focus is liability exposure, because that's what I do. That's what I'm interested in. And that's how I approach it. I just also happen to be passionate about space exploration, space advancement. The way lawyers should look at it is think, what type of law would I like to practice? And then focus on the space industry. So for example, ways to get into space law are government regulation, working for the FAA, working at NASA, those types of things. You may also want to go into government contracting. There's a lot of work in that respect. Um, you may also want to go into business law, so business formation, corporate law, because companies are being created. Companies need to be guided by positions that are more like a general counsel. But fundamentally, you have to understand the system that we work within in order to deal with space issues. If you're really passionate about international law, then maybe you go to what, it's not a good term, but maybe a purer form of space law, but then you would be looking at uh, United Nations COPUS. I've been a legal observer to the legal subcommittee for, um, it's uh, the Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, and it's the United Nations Committee that deals with space and space relations. And maybe those are the areas you don't want to go to, but then you'd be looking at more of a policy orientation mainly probably in D.C. or in the United Nations centers. And that's kind of the way if you want to be pragmatic about it. And the only reason to go into space law, I would say, is if you are passionate about it. Uh, I've been practicing law for 10 years, and I found that being a lawyer is a pretty tough job. And if you're not doing it in a field that you're passionate about, you're going to burn out. And so it really has to come from the heart, the reason to want to do space law. To me, I fell in love with it because it felt like I was part of something greater than myself. I was part of the next frontier for mankind. I know it sounds hokey, but it is, <laughs> it is that. The fact that we are fundamentally a people of exploration and adventure I mean, at some point, some dude on the African continent or a dudette, I don't know, a guy or a girl, picked up whatever they were holding and was like, you know what, I'm going to start walking that way and I'm not going to stop. And, you know, we are a diaspora across this planet. We are constantly exploring and looking and, and wanting to go deeper or further or higher And so it's just a natural part of who we are. And I hope we have evolved enough that this time we can do it responsibly and with empathy and sustainably. But fundamentally, we are just continuing what we've always done, which is 
look to the horizon or up to the sky or down at the water and think, I'm going to go there and I'm not going to stop. That is a very profound answer, chock full of great advice for young or aspiring lawyers in any field, but let alone the space law field. So thank you for that. Um, which leads to my next question for Dr. Forrester. So with the changing of the field regarding space exploration with sort of less emphasis on government work and more on private work, where do you see the growing need for space lawyers? Would you see it in a policy practice with the government or with the UN, or would you see it more in a litigation standpoint with private companies going out into space? All the above, and I I think what we haven't touched on yet, and uh, I'm not an expert in the law, but from what I do see in terms of spaceflight, is we are right now undergoing a revolution in the way that we send and uh, the way we get people and objects into space. Up until now, for the first 60-odd years of the space program, you had to um, book a flight on one of the national government programs, whether it was NASA or Roscosmos or uh, the European Space Agency or, or who have you. That was your only ticket into space. And, and for some time, the only way the United States could send anything to space was the space shuttle, which, mm-hmm. of course, you know, that, the disaster is involved with that. Um, now we have uh, SpaceX, who is uh, a private company that is now launching into orbit more often than Russia as a nation is. We have one company that is now dominating spaceflight, and they are only accelerating. Conversely, the price to send things into space is plummeting. Uh, There are another 20-odd companies that are vying to have the same capability. And and, uh, there'll be a shakeout in that industry. This We'll see maybe five or six of those that are are going to dominate, including SpaceX. But that is a revolution that is undergoing uh, our access to space. It's happening right now. And because of that change from government-run programs to commercially-run space programs, um, we're going to run into huge questions on ownership. Mm -hmm. The Space Treaty, which is 51 years old now, I think, the International Mm -hmm. Outer Space Treaty, defined uh, space in terms of national objectives and national responsibilities. does not address private ownership at all. So SpaceX, which is a company that is going to have to spend billions of dollars, is going to expect a return when they go to the moon, which, by the way, they are planning on spending uh, on sending a private mission to the moon within the next couple of years. Hmm. They are planning on sending a mission to Mars within the next decade. They actually, optimistically, they say less than that, but they're a company that tends to not, uh, they're very optimistic on their schedules. But on the other hand, they have been successful at eventually achieving them. But I don't think the law has kept up with the needs and demands, legal needs and demands of uh, commercial spaceflight. So I think that's a debate that we need to engage in uh, probably before they get there, because it's mm. going to be a lot more complicated to, uh, <laughs> to negotiate this after it's become a fact. Right. And speaking of, you know, the private companies... Uh, with commercial spaceflight, and they want a profit, they want, you know, that's what they're in business for, is to make a profit. Uh, That sort of contradicts with what most of these treaties have said, which is that space is for everyone, and that everyone needs to be able to access things that are uh, discovered in space, but with these private companies that may or may not be beholden unto these treaties, depending on who they're going for. With 
things like asteroid mining or potentially planetary mining and bringing those resources back to Earth, how do you see or how would you like to see that shape out um, in terms of both from the legal perspective and the scientific perspective? Well, I'd be curious for Dr. Carminati's perspective on how private resource ownership is going to shake out. So I think it's going to shake out that possession is nine-tenths of the law, which is probably a cynical view of things, but also realistic in the Mm -hmm. sense that we all agree that the Outer Space Treaty says that resources are to be for the benefit of all mankind. And if you want a simple way of expressing it, it is that we all agree we get to use space and exploit it for in financial ways, which we have done very successfully. Ask any satellite company, they're making a ton of money out of using slots in space. But ownership and a consumptive use, which would be mining, opens a whole other can of worms. And and there's a lot of writing about it. Um, My mentor, Professor Vanderdunk, uh, writes about that extensively. And the idea that, yes, technically, and this is not what he writes, but the tension is that the treaties that we have signed tell us that we're not allowed to take things from space and uh, lay claim by appropriation. But at the same time, if that's what we're going to do with mining, that's what's going to happen. So I think that we're going to see changes in the law. And the fact is that treaties are only as good as enforcement is strong. And if the various countries decide this is not a deal that we want to do anymore, they're just going to get out of it, right? I mean, that that's always an option. So... That's what's going to happen legally in the sense that countries are going to find a way around it. And once somebody is in space, who's going to stop them? Who's going to stop them from from taking it, taking what they want? My concern is different. My concern is that possession and exploitation, and it's what I was referring to earlier, have kind of been our downfall. They bring out the worst in humanity. So in in the way that exploration and adventure and wanting to see what's out there brings out the best in humanity, the use of the resources that we find upon that exploration has given way to some of the most atrocious things that humans have done to each other and to our planet. And so that's really where my concern is. Are we going to go out there and just be hungry and foraging and destructive, or are we going to be responsible about what we do. And that's, I think, where it is harder to bring humans to change because we tend to give in to our baser demons when we're faced with the possibility of making a ton of money. Mm -hmm. I also think that countries where such resources are found right now, and I'm thinking about African countries or Asian countries where there's a lot of these resources that are being mined from, that's a conversation that if mining does be, mining specifically starts becoming a, a reality, they may have some significant concerns about what does it mean for their financial survival if other countries, if spacefaring countries can start buying or finding or finding and then selling those same items elsewhere. Anything to add to that, Dr. Forrester? It is a unexplored frontier. 
in, in, in legally as well as uh, in, in every other commercial and scientific sense. And possession is nine-tenths of the law is a heck of a way to decide on justice. Mm-hmm. But that is what is likely to, to come down the road. Hopefully we can follow our, our better angels, listen to our better angels, you know, rather than just let uh, crass commercialization. Um, for example, what if we decide that the mining of uh, helium on the moon uh, as a nuclear fuel source becomes very profitable if, if fusion ever becomes a thing, nuclear fusion, it, then we will start strip mining the surface of the moon. Well, you could do enough strip mining to physically alter the appearance from the earth. The moon would no longer, you no longer see the man on the moon. I mean, you're taking this idea to extremes. Um, it would just be the same plowed over surface uh, from pole to pole on the moon. We could argue about whether or not the moon as a light of inspiration in our skies is part of the common heritage of humanity. I think that many poets would argue that it is. Um, but if we just let the first 5, 10, 15 companies that uh, can afford to send uh, exploration mining missions to the moon go and have their way, then what's the benefit for the rest of us? If this is going to be for the benefit of all humanity, then uh, how is that going to, in dollars and cents, work out? Given that the to the benefit of humanity is not a defined legal term. Mm-hmm. If it's mm-hmm. not, then <laughs> it's it's just a really pretty uh, uh, wallpaper that we put uh, over the uh, over the entire issue. We'll see. We will. I would like to thank both of you for coming on to this podcast. I've really enjoyed having you, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as well. Thank you very much, Chris. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate it, and I thought we had a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Yes. And I'm really glad that we had this conversation. I hope this sparks more conversations in the future. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Law Student Podcast. You can find this podcast on iTunes, and you can reach out to us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and follow us and all of our student leaders at hashtag ABA for Law Students. Before I go, I'd like to leave you with this quote by Neil deGrasse Tyson. We are part of this universe. We are in this universe. But perhaps more important than both of those facts is that the universe is in us. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.